Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is from Exodus 32, which can be found on page 72 in your pew Bible. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As from this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, the tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who, you, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who had gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, and to to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered around them, around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that, in, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people has, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of God. I encourage you to find your Bibles again and make your way back to Exodus 32. And let's pray as we look at God's Word. Gracious God, there is no greater treasure, there is nothing else worth delighting in, worth giving glory to than you. And Lord, as we look into this story this morning, we confess that so often we give our hearts and our glory to something else, to something less. Lord, have mercy on us this morning to hear from you and to see your glory in a fresh way through your word that you might be treasured and that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story uh, before us this morning is often described as the fall of Israel, uh, an echo of that first fall of humanity back in Genesis chapter 3. And I think there's good reasons for uh, people who make that connection. In Genesis 1 through 2, God is creating uh, the whole world and he creates humanity in his image to have a special relationship with him as his children. Uh, He resources them with everything that they need. He resides with them in the garden where he comes down to walk with them and talk with them in the cool of the day. He rules them as king, instructing them by his word on how to live as his children in his presence for his glory. This beautiful picture of life as it was meant to be. And yet before the story barely takes off, Adam and Eve blow up their lives by rebelling against God, ruining their relationship and forfeiting his presence and his blessing. Uh, What we've been beholding through the story of Exodus so far, uh, especially the past several weeks, has in many ways been Israel's creation story. So it's an echo of the garden as God has redeemed a people for himself, He's rescued them in order to relate to them as his children. He says, you know, 
Back in chapter 4, Israel's my firstborn son. He resources them with everything that they need. Bread from heaven, water from the rock as they are en route to a land flowing with milk and honey. He rules them as their king, making a covenant with them, giving them his law and promising that he will be their God and they will be his people. And he just finished giving Moses plans for the tabernacle so that he can reside with them, that he can dwell among his people, showing them his glory. So it's the creation story all over again, only writ small through one particular people, Israel, through whom God is going to take this bigger vision for creation and restore it and and bring about his intended blessing to all nations. And yet, before Israel even steps a foot away from Mount Sinai, they blow up their lives by rebelling against God, by breaking the covenant that they just finished making with God, ruining their relationship, and it would appear forfeiting God's presence and blessing. It's like they have committed adultery against God. In fact, that's exactly how the Bible describes idolatry. It is spiritual adultery. Israel was wed to God in a covenant ceremony in chapter 24. A promise and a pledge to be devoted exclusively to Him for all generations. But while Moses is up on the mountain receiving Blueprints for their dream house, if you will. In just 40 days, Israel's already sleeping around. That's the picture of this story. This story is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. But it's a tragedy that hits close to home for all of us. Because while we may not in this time and place be tempted to pick up a chisel and kind of carve our own God out in the lobby or something... That doesn't mean we're not tempted and often guilty of replacing God or reducing Him to something that we can control, someone we we can manage. Especially when we can't see Him at work or understand what He's doing. That temptation is all the stronger. And so as we consider this story uh, this morning, the fall of Israel, the golden calf, and, and think about the roots of idolatry, the nature of it, the consequences for it, and ultimately the, re- the remedy that we have in Christ. Don't disconnect yourself from this story. This isn't just Israel's history. This is our story. This is our story as fallen humanity. It's a tragedy. But it's only when we understand that tragedy that we can truly appreciate the remedy that we have in Jesus. And so first, the the roots of idolatry. Where does this come from? Well, in the story of Exodus, as we've been working through it, when we last left off with the people of Israel, we saw them in chapter 24 at Mount Sinai, pledging themselves to the covenant that God was making with them. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. That was their I do at the foot of the mountain. And so what would possess them to so quickly 
discard this incredible relationship and all of God's promises to, to be their God? What, what could so move them to just throw all of that away when they had it so good? Two words, fear and control. Fear and control. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered together themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The Israelites were afraid. They were afraid. Moses, the man who had led them up out of Egypt, the the man through whom God had worked so many incredible miracles, was missing. He went up into the mountain of God nearly 40 days ago, into the fire and the cloud and the thunder that freaked all of us out. He went into that, and we haven't seen him since. We don't know what's become of him. We don't know if he's coming back. They can't see God and they can't understand what he's doing. They don't understand the delay. And so now they are afraid that God is no longer going to make good on his promises. Specifically, his promise to bring them into the land of Canaan. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands. Their fear produces a need for control. We can't see this God. We don't know if he's with us or not. The only way we used to know that was through Moses. He's gone. We need a God that we can depend on. We need a God who's right here with us, right here, right now, so we know whether or not he's in the camp. A God that we can keep tabs on. And so they say to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. When we cannot see God at work, or when we don't understand the work that he's doing, it's really easy to doubt his presence. Are you here or not? Uh, it's really easy to doubt his power. It, can he really do this thing? To doubt his goodness or his faithfulness to his promises. Is he really going to keep his word? It's really easy to fear his absence, and therefore to look for more expedient or closer ways of getting what we want out of life. To replace God or to reduce him to something at least that we can control. Now the irony, of course, is that while they're down in the valley plotting their mutiny because of God's apparent absence... God is up on the mountain with Moses, giving him instructions so that he can dwell with his people in a special way. So often the very thing that we want, the very thing that we are after, is what God actually wants to give us. But we want it on our terms and we want it in our timetable. We're unwilling to trust God to be God. Especially in the midst of a crisis when we're barely keeping our head above water and it doesn't feel like he's answering. And so we look for a substitute. We look for a surrogate. And that brings us to the nature of idolatry. Just what is Israel doing here that's so offensive to God? The nature of idolatry. Well, if you read different books on Exodus, people will 
will disagree and, and talk about whether or not what Israel's doing here is, is mainly breaking the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, or if they're mainly breaking the second commandment, you shall not make a graven image for yourself, or if it's some combination of both. And, and it's clearly the second, that's obvious. He picks up a graving tool and makes a god. Um, but a lot of us often assume that it's, that it's also the first, that, that Israel is inventing a new god to either replace Yahweh or come alongside him. But I don't think that's what the story actually suggests. As soon as Aaron is done fashioning this idol, notice what, he, what the people say. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They give the calf credit for everything Yahweh's done already. And then look at what Moses or what Aaron says after he builds an altar and then makes a proclamation in verse 5. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, Israel's God. And when that feast happens, they're making their offerings to the calf. So idolatry often attempts to replace God. But, but in this case, Israel's not trying to replace him. They're trying to reduce him to an image, to something they can control, something they can see and manipulate and have immediate access to. Instead of God's presence being protected off in this holy of holies, like in the designs he gave Moses, there's this immediate God in the middle of the camp. Anyone can access him. Instead of being a person, he can't speak. You know, but, but they want something they can control. And so it's really the second commandment that's being violated in this story. But what's wrong with making an image? I mean, why, why is that a big offense to God? Can't a statue of God be helpful for facilitating our worship? You know, like, a, like an icon in certain traditions or, you know, the bull calf was a, was a common image of deity in the ancient world. It was a picture of strength and power. I mean, doesn't that help you appreciate God's strength? We're going to picture him as this, this calf. Uh, J.I. Packer explains that in reality, images dishonor God for they obscure his glory. Think about that. They obscure his glory. They don't just misrepresent him, giving him like body parts and things that he doesn't actually have. They actually conceal most, if not all, of the truth about the personal nature and character of the divine being they represent. You know, for, for what idea of God's moral character or righteousness or goodness and patience can you gather from looking at a statue of a calf? It obscures his glory. It, it hides his true nature. So that's the first problem with an image. Second, images also mislead us. For they convey false ideas about God. You know, Aaron, by making an image of God in the form of a bull calf, led the Israelites to think of him as a being who could be worshipped by frenzied debauchery. You know, hence the festival to the Lord that Aaron organized, which, you know, at best was turning into an entertaining dance party all about us. At worst, it was some sort of shameful orgy. To the extent to which that image fails to tell the truth about God, to that extent, you will fail to worship God in truth. So it obscures his glory. It misleads his people. 
If you are getting your ideas about God from that statue, your worship will fall short of God. But perhaps the most insidious reason uh, that a graven image is an offense to God is because that it is ultimately an attempt to reduce him in order to control him. That's what we're doing in idolatry. We, we want to take the God of heaven out of heaven and put him here on earth. And when we do that, we can make him into anything we want. We craft him according to our needs, our desires, our fears, our personal deity, custom built for whatever situation we're in. So making an image of God is an attempt to, to control God, to make him less than who he is so that we can be everything we want to be or get everything we want out of life that we want. And again, that's not just a problem for ancient Israel. Uh, we may not break out the hammer and chisel, but we are experts at reducing God to whatever we want him to be. Crafting a mental image, if you will. Again, J.I. Packer puts his finger on this. How often do you hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as fill in the blank. I don't think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. I like to think of God as the, the sun and the stars and the wind around us. I like to think of God as the champion of whatever I'm really excited about. Whatever it is we're really worshiping, we reduce God to that image. Which means that when you reduce God to an image, breaking the second commandment, you really do replace him with something else, breaking the first. In Israel's effort to reduce and contain God, they actually replaced him with a false god. We do the same. In fact, you, you, you can't actually reduce God to something less if you haven't already replaced him in your heart with whatever you're reducing him to. Tim Keller calls this a counterfeit God. I like that picture. It's, a, it's, it's false. It's fake. Uh, a counterfeit God. It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So think about that for a minute. What is the counterfeit God you're most tempted either to reduce God to or replace him with? What is it that you, you find yourself so tempted to, to turn to in your time of need or to look to for that meaning or that identity what is it that if you were to lose it, you would barely feel like life is worth living anymore? Think about that. Our world is full of these kinds of counterfeit gods. Our hearts are really good at inventing new ones. We can turn to sex or money or education or success or our body image or possessions or family or friends, even, even good things like family and friends and so on. If you make them an ultimate thing, they can become an idol. And so we, we find our life and our identity and our significance in something other than God. We run to that thing to avoid whatever we fear. 
And when you think about that, in terms of of what we actually give up from the Lord in order to chase these lesser gods, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? I mean, nothing can compare to the Lord. It's, it's kind of like watching one of those game shows where the contestants already won a bunch of money, and now they can decide, they can spin the wheel again, again and maybe double that money or else lose it all, or they can walk away with what they have. We spin that wheel every time. Israel's been given a promise of of an inheritance that's never going to perish, spoil, or fade, that that God is going to be their God and they'll be his people. And they're sitting there thinking, wait a second, what if there's more? And that fear of missing out on whatever that more might be will move us to spin that wheel every time and actually end up forfeiting what we already have. I mean, that shows you the foolishness of idolatry. It makes us do stupid things. And it makes us come up with stupid excuses when we get caught. Like Aaron, when Moses confronts him. First, he blames the people for it. You know them. You've dealt with them. Their hearts are set on evil. It's their fault. All I did was throw the gold into that fire. And out came this calf. I mean, it's foolish. But in our fear and in our folly, we reduce the God of heaven to something we try to control on earth. But God will not be reduced or contained, nor will he be replaced. Look at what he says in Isaiah 46. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. It can't get up and walk to where it's going. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. I mean, this is just stupid. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Try as you will. You cannot reduce God. You cannot replace him. He alone is God and he alone deserves to be worshipped. And so what's at stake in trying to reduce the God of heaven to something we can control on earth. It betrays our covenant with God, and it brings us under his judgment. That brings us to the third point, the consequences of idolatry. What what Israel does in crafting an image to represent or reduce the Lord, it's nothing short of spiritual adultery. They betray their covenant with God. They break their vows. That's how the Lord receives their actions. When he reports to Moses on the mountain, better get down there, this is what they're doing. And you look at uh, verse 7. You can hear the distance in God's voice already. This distance in relationship. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Not my people. Up to this point, God's always said, they're my people. Now he's like, they're your people. There's a distance in the relationship. And you see it in, in Moses, in, in basically what Moses illustrates when he takes the two tablets of the testimony, the witness to God's covenant with Israel, engraved by God's own hand, and shatters them at the foot of the mountain. Israel's covenant is broken. The covenant was broken before they even received a copy for their files. That's how fast. And there are consequences for breaking the covenant. Dire consequences. Idolatry is adultery. It's treason. It's rebellion against heaven. And God responds in wrath to all who reduce or replace him. His initial plan, as he explains it to Moses while they're still on the mountain, is simply to destroy Israel and start over with Moses. Uh, Almost like another Noah-type figure. Uh, That's how big a deal this idolatry is. But Moses pleads with God. He, He appeals to him to consider his work of salvation, his reputation, his promise to Abraham, and God relents. He doesn't destroy the people. He doesn't just wipe them out. But he does judge their sin. First through Moses, who destroys the idol and then desecrates it by basically turning it into a protein shake and making everybody drink it and pass it out. And again, he judges them through Moses, who ordains the Levites to strike down any who are continuing to break loose or run wild, even after the idol's been destroyed. They're still frenzying. And then a third time we see God's judgment in the chapter, in verse 35, when God sends a plague on the people. This is serious business. God deals in justice with idolatry. And, and every time we run into those passages, it, uh, it, it can be hard for some of us to swallow. Like, why can't God just overlook the whole thing and, and um, shorten the sentence or let him out of timeout early or something like that? Well, first, it's because he's the only one who deserves our worship. This is a massive offense against God. I mean, if you lend somebody several thousand dollars so that they can go buy a car, and they, instead of paying you back, they they give that money to somebody else as though somebody else had originated the loan. They're paying somebody else back. Or, Or they just decide to keep it for themselves. Is that right? Is that just? In the same way, God is, is the creator, the sustainer. He's the savior and ruler of all humanity. And so everything that we have comes from him. Everything that we are is made to reflect his glory. So, but idolatry, it not only refuses to give God the glory he deserves, it actually takes that glory and either gives it to something else or keeps it for ourselves. That's what we're doing. But God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You cannot steal God's glory and get away with it. But idolatry idolatry doesn't just offend God, it also poisons his people. Uh, Look again at verse 7. He says, the people have corrupted themselves. They've corrupted themselves. When we replace God or reduce Him, 
it doesn't just dishonor him, it destroys us. It binds our hearts to something that can never make good on its promises. It brings us under God's wrath. But here's the problem. If idolatry is just as much a problem for us today as it was for Israel then, and if idolatry breaks the covenant with God and brings us under His wrath, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? What hope do we have in a story like this? Well, what hope does Israel have in the story? Our chapter doesn't actually fully answer that question. Uh, it, it ends with God telling Moses to lead the people into the land and, and promising that he'll send his angel. But there's no mention of waiting till the tabernacle is finished to set out. That seems to be off the books, off the, off the plan. And there's no promise of God actually going with them. We're kind of left in limbo at the end of chapter 32. And Naveen Williams is going to pick that story up for us next week. But we do see the remedy for idolatry begin to unfold in the story. And it's not something Israel comes up with on their own. It's not like, oh, if we just stop doing this thing and and start doing something else, um, the damage is done, the debt must be paid. Israel's only hope is a qualified mediator who can stand between them and God and plead their case on their behalf. And that's exactly the role we see Moses playing in this story and continuing to play the next few chapters. And he does a great job. He's very effective at the beginning of the chapter when God's ready to wipe them out. He, he pleads, he appeals to God's uh, to the work God has just done. He appeals to his reputation. Think of how Egypt's going to slander you if you just wipe out your people. He appeals to the promise he made to Abraham, and God relents from, from that disaster. So, so his pleas are effective at the beginning of the chapter. God does not destroy his people. But at the end of the chapter, he approaches God again. This time, not simply to ask for him not to destroy Israel, but to ask him to forgive Israel. He says in verse 30 to Israel, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returns to the Lord. He goes back up the mountain. He confesses Israel's sin. He asks God to forgive it. And if not, he offers himself in exchange for them. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But what's interesting is that Moses' appeal doesn't work this time. The Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. I'm not going to take you as a substitute. Those who sinned will bear their punishment. I'm not going to destroy the people, but I will visit them to punish their sin. And his presence is left as a question mark. But even though Moses' intercession is not effective this time, it does hint at what it will ultimately take to remedy our idolatry. The kind of mediator that we need. Moses might not be the right man, but he does have the right idea. Offering himself in exchange 
for the people. Because that's exactly what it will take to deal once and for all with Israel's idolatry and with ours. We need a mediator who will stand in our place offering his righteous life for ours and accepting in himself the curse for our idolatry. And that's exactly what Christ did. Moses wasn't qualified to be that kind of mediator. Only Jesus is. And because he's our mediator who reconciles us to God and because Jesus is God and is with us by the Holy Spirit, we don't have to give in to the temptation to reduce him to something else or to replace him when we get afraid, to try and step out and control. In Jesus, we can say no to idolatry and yes to God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 as he's reflecting on this very story in Exodus. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Because Jesus is your mediator and Jesus is with you. You don't have to manipulate God to bring him down here. You don't have to try and control him. You can't. But you can trust him. You can trust him that he's with you even when it doesn't make sense. To quote Packer again, This story is a summons to us to recognize that God the Creator is transcendent, mysterious, and inscrutable, beyond the range of any imagining or philosophical guesswork, and hence a summons to us to humble ourselves, to listen and learn of Him, to let Him teach us what He's like and how we should think of Him. Even when we can't see God, He knows what He's doing. Even when we can't understand Him, we don't have to be afraid. His plan is always going to be better than the one that we design to replace it. And He will be faithful to His promises. And so may we trust in Him. Not in the God we want Him to be. Or like to think of him as. But the God who he really is. Who has revealed himself to Israel. In the Exodus. To us through Jesus. To everyone through his word. May we trust God as he really is. And so walk in humble obedience with him. Giving him the glory he alone deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we confess, we confess that daily we are tempted to replace you. 
that hourly we are tempted to reduce you to something that looks more like us than like you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our, our idolatry. Forgive us for wanting to take control, for living out of fear instead of faith. And Lord, thank you that, that even though Moses' mediation didn't completely work, even though there's nothing any of us here can, can do or say to make that up, we have a mediator at your right hand right now. And he is enough. And so we praise you that through Christ, our worship can be redeemed and is redeemed. May we give you the glory you deserve. May we trust and treasure Christ and turn away from whatever idols plague our life, Lord. You're worth so much more than that. Help us see you and worship you as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please.